to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, 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 welcome to this uh, fine Wednesday. Um, <laughs> it's Wednesday and I actually don't know what day it is. It's the 20th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Our producer, Fong, is in studio, and I don't know what day it is because I've just been, I've been so out of it, so I apologize that uh, we've not been in studio. Uh, sadly, my aunt passed away last Thursday, and uh, wow, I'm sharing it. I didn't know I was going to share it, but I might as well be honest here. I've been pretty honest <laughs> on this show anyway. Um, you know, she was getting up there. She's 75 years old, and she was sick, so it, it wasn't too unexpected, uh, but it was still sad. So I'll dedicate, you know, today's show to, to my aunt as we talk about the future and, you know, the work that we need to do to kind of keep America great because uh, she immigrated here and, you know, stayed in a refugee camp in Thailand for a couple of years before being able to, to come here. The interesting thing is you know, my family, my dad and her um, who came here were sponsored by Christians and, um, you know, they, they really, really believe in, in America uh, mm-hmm. being the place for a better opportunity. And so maybe, Fong, you know what that's like, or your parents. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah. yeah. And so um, as, as much as I'm always <laughs> critical <laughs> of, of where we're at politically and socially here in this country, I, after my aunt's uh, passing, I, I really had to take a few steps back to think about what was important to her. And I wouldn't even be this educated uh, had it not been for my aunt um, and my dad who had this drive and the the patience and the will and the courage mm-hmm. to immigrate here from, mm-hmm. you know, Southeast Asia uh, during the late 70s being, you know, under communist rule. And some of those countries are still, uh, uh, you know, under communist rule. So if I if they didn't get here and I was born there, I just wouldn't even be able to be here to have a radio show and to be talking about these things. And uh, women just don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I I also found out this weekend that uh, me being an outspoken, educated, political and uh, nonconforming woman uh-huh. was very, very difficult for, for some people who had not seen me since I was two or three years old. Men were oh, very wow. upset to see me this way. Um, Upset so, because you're intelligent and you're doing awesome yes, work. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. It was it was very hard, very very hard. So um, I will leave again tonight. Uh, the funeral will be tomorrow. I'm becoming a Buddhist nun. It's traditional um, uh, during you know for 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 our culture to do that. So thanks for tuning in today. Let's get today's uh, program started. As I mentioned earlier, I you know we really got to start looking into the future. 2016 is going to be. A, uh, well, a year in which we elect a new president and the way that I look at it, there is no other choice than to elect a Democratic candidate. Um, so our guest today will help us at least, you know, here on this program because he's uh, always on Progressive Voices Network and I know he contributes to the Stephanie Miller show. Um, uh, and, and it's kind of more like I think that the queers need to start talking about who are we going to choose. I know there's a lot of people who say it's going to be Hillary Clinton and a lot of people who say it's going to be Bernie Sanders. But let's have that open discussion. I think it's time. Uh, let's welcome our guest today from the Bob and Chez show. And he also contributes to Salon.com and HuffingtonPost.com and has a, a bunch of cool stuff that he does on his website. So, Bob, welcome to the program. Bob Seza. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Michelle. Really appreciate it. 
Um, so, you know, the other the other day, actually two days ago, I got a shot glass. It was a Hillary Clinton shot glass um, mm-hmm. from <laughs> one of my colleagues. And then, you know, as he was giving it to me, he was like, wait, I haven't even had a chance to ask you which way you were going to go. This is a pretty important question in the LGBTQ community, and it seems almost split. There are some of us who, who seem to identify with Bernie's politics, and then there are some of us uh, who had been, you know, Hillary Clinton followers for the longest time. It, this is a big, big, big question, uh, but let's kind of try to dissect this. I mean, uh, why, why, why would one say that Bernie could, could, really, could really win this for the Democratic, uh, uh, you know, team? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's a tough call because on one hand, you know, as someone who kind of was... Uh, uh, hit by every possible repercussion of the Great Recession, I really, uh, I, I really like Bernie Sanders, and I like what he has to say about uh, Wall Street and income inequality. Certainly, punishing the big banks, breaking them up, um, and especially also after seeing the movie The Big Short, which anyone who said that that was an advertisement for Bernie Sanders is exactly right, because and that's that's a very good thing. But at the same time, I'm really mostly concerned, and this is. Uh, coming from many, many more decades that I'd like to admit of following politics, which is that I'm most interested in voting for the Democrat who uh, has the best chance of beating the Republicans. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the main thing. I mean, what, the, the biggest deal, I think, is not so much an issue-by-issue breakdown of Bernie versus Hillary. It's more along the lines of who has the strongest potential to stop Donald Trump or Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio from winning in November, and that's really what it all comes down to. And and while both candidates um, are are favored in the polls to win in a national sense, it's it's more about who's the who's less of a gamble. And some and depending on the day, I, I tend to believe that. Uh, Hillary Clinton is less of a gamble as far as winning because she's a known commodity. She, mm-hmm. Everyone knows exactly what Bernie, about uh, what Hillary Clinton is all about. Bernie Sanders is a little bit more of an unknown, and therefore he's more susceptible to being mischaracterized by the Republicans in the same way they characterized Barack Obama as being this Kenyan Muslim, blah, 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 or you know, going back to 2004, the way they mischaracterized John Kerry as being this effete French-sounding uh, liberal, and he really wasn't. He was uh, wounded in Vietnam three times, you know, three Purple Hearts and other uh, other decorations, and, you know, he's a war hero, and they, they painted him as being this, you know, this guy who um, has no business uh, being commander-in-chief. So that's, I mean, that's really where my concern is uh, with regard to the general. As we look at, uh, you know, what's what's going on with the country right now, what's on uh, top of people's minds? I mean, even if you're you're talking about racial issues, uh, Bernie Sanders seems to um, seems to be addressing the racial issue more so than Hillary Clinton. And uh, I feel like he, you know, as a as a as a progressive, as a radical progressive, he's really winning in that area. Um, and 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 then also the fact that, as you mentioned on your article here on Salon.com, how Bernie could win it all. I mean, the fact that he's abandoned, you know, the traditional uh, fundraising ways. There's so many things that's likable about him. If you are a progressive, and I think yep. that he has a, a real chance. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he has a chance to win the nomination. I'm a little more skeptical about his chances in the general election. And part of that has to do with the fact that the Republicans seem to be really, really excited about him potentially winning the nomination. Mm. And I've spoke to a few uh, Republicans, some of them uh, former uh, Senate staffers and so on, who are just, they're just on the edge of their seat waiting for uh, Bernie Sanders' nomination. Because they know they can, they can completely, uh, you know, uh, uh, just tear apart a guy who's 74 years old, who's going to be 75 in September, who's Jewish and who's a democratic socialist. Although the rest of us know what democratic socialist means, it's, it'll be very easy to mischaracterize that as being, you know, like, the red baiting is going to be rampant when it comes to the general election if Bernie Sanders is the nominee. And most elections are decided, they're really won or lost in those purple states with undecided moderate voters. Mm -hmm. And it's not really about convincing the far left or the far right or 
some of the, the the points in between. It's more about convincing those moderate voters, and that's that's a big concern for me. And, and again, I say this as someone who really likes Bernie Sanders and would love to see him win right. everything and and be able to successfully push his agenda through once uh, once elected and so on. Um, but you know, I just I I seem to be erring in the side of caution at this point. Mm-hmm. And and again, I I, I want to also emphasize that uh, that I am undecided, and I haven't decided which you know which candidate, Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton, I'm actually and ultimately going to end up voting for in the California primary. That is so funny you say that because that's the exact same thing I said two days ago when I got that shot glass. I actually, yeah. I'll drink out of a Hillary Clinton shot glass and a Bernie Sanders <laughs> shot yeah. glass. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there are merits to both candidates. Mm-hmm. And again, I think <clears throat> ultimately the decision has to come down to um, what I believe is a responsible vote, which is a vote for someone who is going to stop the Republicans. I want the Democratic nominee to destroy the Republicans in the general election, because they represent so many things that are going to be terrible. I mean, the repercussions are going to be far-reaching across the spectrum, uh, from foreign policy to domestic policy to civil rights to reproductive rights to the climate, and so on. And I can't even imagine... What's going to happen if a Republican like Donald Trump or Ted or worse, Ted Cruz, who I think is far worse than Donald Trump, mm-hmm. being elected president? We're talking about a complete elimination of the Obama legacy um, and a lot of new and terrible things that we've never even imagined yet. So, right, that right, too. right. Um, I want to get to the Republicans after the break, but um, but for right now, I want to talk about Bernie and, and Hillary. And so, for the LGBTQ voters, which uh, you know, has been th- the focus in the last, I would say, a uh, few years here in terms of, um, you know, how they vote and uh, or I should say how we vote. Um, you know, what do you what I, I can't find too many differences between the two candidates that are extreme when it comes to LGBT issues. Uh, but you might know more than I do. Yeah, no, I mean, I think they're about the same. They both kind of evolved from a position of supporting civil unions, maybe in the, the late to uh, middle 2000s. Uh, I know Bernie Sanders in 2006, uh, when he was first running for Senate, uh, also supported civil unions, much like Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton before him, um, and, then, uh, and then has since evolved to supporting marriage equality, and I think that's important. And, but I think they're about the same. I think you're right on that. I think it's, it's basically a draw when it comes to that issue. It's, it's really, I think, if you dig down below the idea of just simply supporting the candidate who you think is going to more successfully defeat the Republicans, mm-hmm. beyond that, it's, it's more of an issue in terms of establishment versus anti-establishment. And certainly Bernie Sanders represents an, an anti-establishment um, philosophy that, that's resonating with a lot of people who are just fed up with the way uh, campaigns are financed and with the, the way that the two-party system is run and so on. I tend to be a, a little less cynical when it comes to the two-party system, although I do agree that uh, sweeping changes need to be made in campaign finance to get the money entirely out of politics. And right. in fact, if the money was out of politics and it was completely uh, financed by taxpayers, um, Bernie Sanders would have a much greater shot when it comes to the, the process that he's using for fundraising. Here's here's a question. I don't know if this has been discussed at all out there in uh, talk radio land, but is it possible that, you know, if if Hillary is um, the presidential candidate for the Democratic side, that uh, Bernie Sanders might consider running as her running mate or, you know, uh, that's that's always possible. I I think. I, I think that would benefit her greatly. I think, you know, I think choosing Bernie Sanders would be um, extraordinarily beneficial. I think it would be a, a, an amazing choice and a, and a fantastic ticket. If, likewise, I think if Bernie Sanders gets the nomination, I would love to see Elizabeth Warren uh, run with him as uh, as his vice presidential choice. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think Hillary Clinton can certainly benefit by not only the uh, the very fanatical support that Bernie Sanders enjoys right now, but also the way that his uh, more left-leaning ideas balance out her more centrist tendencies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a quick break right here, Bob, but when we, when we come back, I'd like to start uh, dissecting, you know, the guys on the other side, the ones who are the entertainers of some circus that we're not sure. invited to. All right. 
<laughs> when we come back, the Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Babe. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this hump day. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. Fong, our producer, is in studio. And our guest today is from the Bob and Chez show. He's also a contributor at Salon.com um, and, uh, and, and has, has contributed here on the Progressive Voices Network. And that's Bob Seska. Bob, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much, Michelle. Um, so, you know, we were before the break, we were discussing your article, how Bernie could win it all. And uh, basically, what would it take for a democratic so- socialist to become president? But, you know, now I kind of want to talk about the Republicans, although we've I feel like we exhaust airtime every day talking about these guys. <laughs> um, but you mentioned earlier something interesting in which, you know, Ted Cruz is worse than Donald Trump. Uh, why, why, you know, why do you think so? Um, because I think Donald Trump is more along the lines of what you see is what you get. I think Donald Trump is quite transparent in terms of who he is and what he believes and the kind of president he's going to be. I think Ted Cruz is so completely disingenuous. He's got this very thin veil of earnestness that he uses to describe, you know, just the awfulness that lurks underneath. I mean, he... When he speaks, there's, there's nothing he can say could possibly make me believe for one second anything that he's saying. He's so completely disingenuous. Mm-hmm. And, and the people he associates with are the worst of the worst. I mean, people who've supported uh, terrorism against uh, abortion doctors and abortion clinics, all the way down the line. I mean, basically the rogues gallery of, of far-right bastards who we've been observing for many, many years now. And that, those are Ted Cruz's people. And that's, yeah, we're talking about a candidate who's, if he wins the nomination, will maybe be the, the most conservative, the most far-right candidate we've seen in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. Now, let's, let's kind of focus on LGBTQ rights. I mean, you know, obviously under uh, President Obama, we've made a lot of, uh, progress regarding yep. LGBT rights, and uh, if we elect a any of these guys here on the the right side, um, something that's on top of our mind is that they'll be able to be successful in reversing some of that progress by using religion as as a uh, as justification. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I totally agree. I, I think also on top of that, um, what's been obvious over the last few years, and especially so over the last few years is the fact that the Republicans have been um, kind of exploiting the fact that we on the left often pay too much attention to what happens at the presidential level, distracting us to the point, especially distracting uh, liberal activists away from what's happening at the state level, where I think a lot of the damage is taking place. I mean, the real damage to 
LGBTQ uh, ideas and progress is happening at the state level as well as uh, progress. Just, I mean, the worst laws you can imagine on reproductive rights, uh, voter ID at the state level. This, this is all stuff that's really, really damaging to the process across the board, not only damaging uh, to that, but also to, to civil rights, civil liberties as well. And uh, I think that's where the Republicans come out on top. And, and they're just, I think they just count on the fact that, that we're just going to be distracted by things like Trump and Sarah Palin while not paying any attention to what they're doing at the state level. And that's, that's where they're getting away with murder. Huh? Sarah Palin? <laughs> yeah, believe it or not, she's back. Oh my God! Last night uh, during her uh, speech for Donald Trump yesterday, she said the words. Uh, <laughs> she said the, the words of uh, uh, what was it? Um, oh, I can't believe I forgot what she said. She, she was just something really, <laughs> really just terribly ridiculous uh, about uh, Obama's uh, clinging to the guns thing. It was. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm rapidly looking it up now. Um, it was just, it, oh, bitter clinging proud clingers. Oh. <laughs> I didn't know what that is. Bitter clinging proud clingers. Oh, that's new. Yeah, that's um, a new one. Okay, so it's how... My favorite thing she's ever said since she described the role of the vice president as being position flexible. Position flexible. She actually said that on Fox <laughs> News back in 2008. That's what, what's, the role, what's the role of the vice president? You know, the job you're running for. And her, her reaction was, oh, well, it's a position flexible. <laughs> what? <laughs> All right, okay, we chuckle and we laugh, um, and, you know, but at the same time, what's scary about Palin is that he's actually likable to Americans. Um, I think that that's a real fear. She's she's kind of you know inserting herself into this election somehow. I mean, what what are your thoughts in terms of where that's going? Well, you know, I don't I don't know that she is so popular. I mean, I, I looked it up yesterday, and and as and this is the most recent number I could find, but as recently as 2013, her favorability among Republicans was only 27 percent. Oh. So I'm not sure what the calculus is behind Donald Trump, you know, latching his campaign onto the Sarah Palin bandwagon. Seems like it's kind of a weak move and could end up damaging him. And certainly it's going to make him look sillier than he already looks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, you know, and that's maybe just me being very cynical because it seems like uh, the more Hollywood our politics become <laughs> yeah. or a candidate that can, can you know, play on that, uh, the uh, I guess the 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 more attention, the more popularity. It, it, it's it's almost like politics has become Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's very much true. I, I think there's a reality show uh, aspect to it. I think some of the debates seem almost like game shows with the dinging sounds and the graphics and the commercial breaks. I mean, I think it's really damaging. I mean, it's like it's not really getting discussed a whole lot. That um, while the debates, I think, are more spirited than they've ever been and more freeform than they've ever been, at the same time, it's weird that there are commercial breaks. Like there are corporate sponsors being inserted into political discussions where it shouldn't be that way and never used to be that way. Um, so I, I'm, I'm interested to see how that is going to end up evolving over time. Let's uh, before we let you go, Bob. Let's kind of you know get serious now. I mean, what are what are the some of the issues for the rest of America who are on the the moderate you know side of things and uh, who are you know more focused on the issues? I mean, what do we got to keep in mind here? What's at stake? Uh, what's important to Americans uh, in in terms of the future? Where we need to go? Well, I think the most important issue right now, um, that, well, there are three. Here are the three top-shelf issues, and they're, they're, they're broad-stroke issues, but I think they're ones that, that inform everything else. And, I, you know, I think the most important issue right now is obviously the climate crisis, because none of, nothing's going to matter if we're, you know, up to our necks in water, and, uh, and, and there are wars being fought over water. Um, that's, that's bad. I mean, that's, I can't emphasize how bad it is, and what's making it worse is the fact that it seems like whenever I write about the climate crisis, I can just hear the crickets chirping. No one wants to read about the climate crisis. I think it's such a, a doom and gloom issue that people just abandon it, and that's, that's, that's bad news, because mm-hmm. it's something that requires uh, full attention and, and full 
uh, charismatic enthusiasm as far as fighting it. And it, without that, it's sort of it's lost. And because of the fact that we're already in it, um, I think it also seems futile. But even beyond that, I think uh, issues uh, like um, uh, voter ID, I think, is also extraordinarily important, and, and campaign finance. These are, I think, three issues that affect an entire range of other issues. If you talk about voter ID, as I was saying before, as more and more Democrats are being disenfranchised at the state level, that means that you know we have more and more uh, Republicans controlling both chambers of state legislatures and the, uh, the governorships of all of these states. And you can almost correlate a graph based on the increased prevalence of voter ID versus the in- increased prevalence of Republicans controlling an entire state government. And that is giving us all of these other terrible things, religious liberty uh, laws and, and things like that that also pop up as a consequence of, of Republican control. And what about young voters? I mean, there are, you know, uh, President Obama is a really good example of using social media and, uh, you know, and I don't want to use the word. No, that's not the word I want to use. But but he's made it. He's he's very popular in that sense, uh, especially yep. to younger voters. Um, th- these three issues here, I'm, I'm not really sure if they're going to be hot ticket items for young voters. I mean, is there do you think there's going to be a focus on trying to get those voters out? Well, yeah, I mean, I think so. I think I think Bernie Sanders is resonating with younger voters because mm-hmm. he's speaking to uh, to their needs. He's sort of the natural extension of Occupy Wall Street, was which was very much a young person uh, movement, and it didn't really turn out the way it should have. But I think Bernie Sanders might be be the end result that uh, I think everyone was looking for. Well, Bob, thank you so much for your time and for joining us here, and uh, I hope you come back, especially if we, you know we get closer to the election. Thanks so much, Michelle. Really appreciate it. If you'd like to follow Bob and maybe tune into his podcast and everything else that he does, you can head to bobseska.com. That's B-O-B-C-E-S-C-A. Don't go away. When we come back, the Michelle Meow Show continues. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody. And that's just kind of the attitude and the, the uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works you know I would say to young kids you know just kind of form your own identity and uh, and you know don't let others dictate how you should behave or think uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis if you want to see drag we've got that for you if you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties we have that for you spotlight on success and achievement Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. It's Michelle Miao. You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. After the most recent tragic Paris attacks, the world had a lot of opinions regarding terrorists, border control and immigration, and also Muslims. 
Donald Trump made the shocking comment that we should discontinue allowing Muslims and uh, immigrants, uh, but, but, you know, pointed out Muslims into this great country, America. To me, Donald's opinions are not shocking. I mean, Donald's not shocking. Anything he says is BS. So he himself is not shocking to me. But what what is shocking is the fact that there are Americans out there that are agreeing with him or that support his ideas. So how did we get to this place where Americans think Muslims are horrible? Our guest today is Professor Brian Edwards, who teaches English, Middle East Studies, and Literature at Northwestern University. He's also the author of After the American Century, The Ends of the U.S. Culture in the Middle East. And he's here to discuss a couple articles uh, of his that have been featured on Salon.com, and both discussing Trump and other American political figures who may have contributed to to Americans believing Muslims are the most horrible. Let's welcome Brian to the program. Brian, thanks so much for being with us. Well, Michelle, thank you for having me. So let's treat today's show as if we're, we're all your Muslim students when you're teaching in Morocco, in, in which a student actually did ask you in the, uh, one of the articles that you wrote, um, why Islam? Why, why are they considered the worst? You know, I was in uh, Morocco in December again. I've been spending a lot of time in Morocco over the last 20 years. Did a did my first book uh, based in Morocco, um, and so I... When I'm in Morocco, I often go into classrooms and talk with students or give, give a class, give a lecture. Uh, and I happened to be in Morocco again in December when um, Trump's uh, statements uh, about keeping Muslims out of the United States were airing on media. Now, one of the ideas that we have or that you know, we, we, we think is that Expressions such as what Donald Trump was saying don't make it immediately around the world. There's an, an old idea uh, that's sometimes referred to as Orientalism, that there are two different worlds, that there's the Middle East and North Africa over there, uh, and the United States you know, is in the contemporary period over here. But of course, uh, anyone who spends time uh, in any other part of the world, uh, including the Middle East and North Africa, knows that that's not true. There's immediate connectivity. People young people, people of all ages, see through satellite TV, through the Internet, through much of the same ways that we consume media here in the United States, uh, they're getting a lot of images and, and phrases and political rhetoric making their way to Morocco. So in this classroom in Fez, University of Fez, Sidi Mohammed bin Abdullah University, uh, which is really the, one of the cultural centers of Morocco and of, of the greater Arab world, the young woman who was an undergraduate you know, asked me a question and said, why is it that Americans think that Muslims are the worst? Uh, why do they think that everything um, bad is coming out of the religion when, from our perspective, we see on our media that in the United States you have a very violent culture that mm-hmm. people walk around carrying guns, um, and it used to be that this was just rhetoric, but in fact we know this now to be the case, that people walk around in many states in supermarkets and in university campuses carrying guns openly and are allowed to do so. And this young woman said, you know, to us, uh, it seems that the United States, in fact, is a very violent culture. We watch your movies. We play Grand Theft Auto games and other video games um, that are all very violent but that are very popular around the world. Um, And from our perspective, in fact, you guys are the violent ones. Um, and yet, if you were watching the rhetoric of a lot of your politicians, you would think that we're always in across-the-board violence. Um, when you would never see someone holding a gun uh, in a place like Morocco, it just doesn't happen. It's only the police or the military who would have guns legally uh, or at all. Um, and it seemed like a question that would be commonsensical uh, if you're coming from an American standpoint, because we have for so long uh, villainized or made Muslims or Arabs, not, of course, the same category. We can talk about the distinctions in a moment, if you like, um, as a sort of scapegoat uh, or a generalized kind of group that stands for all bad things in the world. Um, And as many people have pointed out, of course, this allows us to filter the news that we see in a particular way and to see um, the reality that's unfolding every day through a kind of filter that helps us to figure out, helps us as consumers of media in the United States to make certain kinds of decisions. Um, you, know, re- I don't, you know, to be a little bit abstract for a moment, reality is 
always complicated. There's a lot of stuff that goes on that we witness every day as mm-hmm. we walk through a city or a town, wherever you live. And we kind of categorize the knowledge that, or these kind of random facts and, and observations into categories and narratives and ongoing narratives that help us to explain that messy reality. It's not a new observation. It's been <laughs> observed for decades and decades in the United States. Um, and it's uh, now it seems that into the last uh, several decades, but we can talk about different changes in the story, that Muslims and Arabs have been the latest in a series of scapegoats in the United States. Um, right. And they have not always been Muslims. It has been you know, African-Americans uh, in the past, Asians, Asian-Americans during World War II period. Um, you can go all the way back to the scholars, go back all the way to the Salem witch trials when young women uh, were, you know, accused of being witches for uh, and, and, you know, uh, right. killed by the state for that. Um, so there's a there's a long tradition in the United States that we can, you know, point to and try to understand, not, uh, you know, and that's the goal here, to try to understand that. So this young woman, I had to say to this young woman, well, I mean, it was it was not an innocent question, of course. She she knew that she was an educated um, young woman, um, and she, but she really was asking from a very open and um, an open place, and really, you know, just the frustration that young people, that the, my students and the students here in the United States feel too about the world that they've uh, inherited. So it's safe to say this, you know, the internet, it, the tool itself, uh, that's not a bad thing. It's a great thing for us to stay connected and to get our news fast um, or information or education, I think even for yourself as a professor, I mean, the Internet's done a, a great thing for us. It's, it's, the, um, it's the news. It's the people who are creating the content, who are saying the things. That's, that's the bad part. Um, and when you look at the American media uh, systems or the big corporations um, who have some control over this, I would say that they are they are to blame for for a lot of this, or or maybe you disagree. Maybe maybe it's it's uh, the the politicians like Donald Trump, or who is to blame? Well, it's a really interesting question, Michelle. Um, of course, the uh, media allow and the ability for voices uh, to be heard is a, is a good thing, um, and I think that the, one of the great achievements of the internet and what I called the digital age that we're living within is that people with much less access to power or much less access to major media outlets can now find a voice and express themselves. Um, and that has been changing, as we know, every day. It becomes more possible to, to reach an audience um, outside certain kind of power structures or corporate structures. It used to be, you know, just not too long ago that if you were living in a certain place or um, you just couldn't express yourself without going to the local newspaper or the local radio station, which had a limited reach, or try to find a way into the really powerful main outlets back when there was only a few television channels and only a few major newspapers and so mm-hmm. on. Um, and so I do believe absolutely that the, the fact that the Internet has democratized, let's say, or given access to a much larger range of people is a good thing. Of course, what's interesting about that is that at the same time, you know, you can't, as, as with any kind of free speech, you can't control what that means, and one shouldn't expect that, that we could. Um, and we're now kind of in an interesting second, you know, l- l- looking at the Internet, there was first the arrival of the Internet and the amazing thing. I'm sure we remember the amazing, what we remember because no matter how old one is, it's changing every day. Mm-hmm. You know, even kids in school today see that, they think about what they could do last year, it seems like ancient history. It's a very rapid development of the technology, of course. Um, and so you had the Internet. And then, you know, in the, uh, in the mid-2000s, uh, you had what has been referred to as Web 2.0. It wasn't a new Internet that un- unraveled or was un- you know, released. But all of a sudden, the Internet started to become more interactive as a space. People could put up videos. People could leave comments. They could uh, you know, upload things themselves, and that really changed the Internet and changed the way in which voices uh, might be heard. had some fantastic and wonderful examples of, of what that might allow to happen. Um, frequently, we point to 
um, the what's been called the Arab Spring, not a term that Middle East experts usually use, the Arab uprisings, um, partially because it happens in the winter, <laughs> um, partially right. because uh, it was a little bit deceptive as a term. In any case, it, there, you know, the ability for so, of young Egyptians and Tunisians to use social networking media, Twitter, Facebook, uh, to organize and, and bring down a longtime uh, autocratic di- dictator was remarkable. I'm not saying that everything um, I have said in print and in the new book, I say this too. Facebook and Twitter didn't create the Arab Spring. There was a lot, they, but they were a tool that was one of the tools that young um, resistors uh, in Egypt and Tunisia and elsewhere were able to use, and that without which they might not have been able to organize as quickly or as effectively as they did. So we right. have to kind of balance that, you know. Um, but also, of course, the Internet, when one should always remember that the Internet is uh, um, and social networking is a tool for not such good things happening. ISIS is very sophisticated in its use of the Internet um, as recruiting kind of locations and has very savvy media people who know how to um, use some of the same uh, mechanisms to attract uh, recruits to, to their cause, which is not something generally people are very supportive of outside um, that world, especially in the Middle East, very critical of that. Um, and what we are seeing here in the United States, and this gets us to Trump, is that, you know, I mean, haven't, haven't you noticed that, that what we've now called trolling or trolls, right. um, that there's a <laughs> lot of just negative hate speech mm-hmm. that seems to proliferate on the Internet in a way that it's hard to know, it's hard to study, seems out of sync with um, the kind of, what would you say, the the number of people expressing it. Right, right. Want, yeah. It seems disingenuous, and uh, I think I think it's a whole lot easier for you to just be someone else and be even more hateful. Just, just some for some, I think it's even like just it's you know it's a it's thrilling. Um, it's not even it might not even be what you you think or you feel. Or it's not even your politics, but but to to say some hurtful things might just be thrilling for you uh, behind a computer. It's really a fascinating and disturbing development um, that the that this version of what we're still calling Web 2.0 mm-hmm. has allowed such proliferation of negativity. And I know this as someone who's published uh, articles online, you know, not not just these new salon pieces, which of course released a huge amount of hate speech um, against not only you know me, the author. Um, but also the people, the young people that I was writing about, the very this young innocent woman um, who asked this question about the violence, uh, mm-hmm. could not have been a, a, a you know more well-meaning student. And some of the speech that was directed at her was not only just kind of factually wrong, you know, but was was violently negative and hateful. Right, right. Um, Brian, and we're, actually, we're... you know, and there's something about the. I mean, this is the thing. We have to say that true democracy or pure, you know, and true free speech um, allows for a lot of very distasteful uh, expressions of that sure. speech. Now, that's not to say it should be shut down. Of course, we're supporters of free speech, but you have to also at the same time realize that it is not a pure good um, in the sense that it allows for this aggressive kind of hatefulness. Exactly. Exactly. Brian, we're, we're going to take a quick break right here. But when we come back, I want to I want to touch on the American century and what that means. So stick around. OK, the Michelle Miao show continues right after this. Don't go away. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, 
Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say, I do. Especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. Our guest today is Professor Ed, uh, Brian Edwards, who teaches English Middle East Studies and Literature at Northwestern University. And he's also the author of After the American Century, The Ends of the U.S. Culture in the Middle East. And uh, we've been talking about uh, why Islam, why, why Americans might think that Muslims are the worst. And so... Uh, you know, it doesn't help when you have people like Donald Trump um, saying things like, like, uh, you know, we should should not allow uh, Muslims into our country. Um, but, Brian, I, I wanted to, to touch on something that you mentioned in your article uh, called American Century, in which you cite from a, an essay uh, written by Henry Luce. What, what is the American Century? What's that idea? Okay, so the, the American century is a phrase that gets used a lot um, in different ways, of course. Henry Luce, who was the publishing mogul, the founder of Time and Life magazine, Sports Illustrated and Fortune, uh, had a huge publishing empire through the 20th century. And in 1941, February, 10 months before the United States enters World War II, he publishes his probably his most influential essay called The American Century. At the time, he actually was, had been raised outside the United States in China, the child of missionary parents, um, but now here he was as this very powerful publisher. And he was responding to those in the United States who were reluctant to get into World War II, um, isolationists, and, and um, basically he, was, he makes an argument that the United States should get into World War II and that we were already an international power. Um, what's remarkable from our day and age is how little Amer- many, most Americans felt that they were the global superpower back in 1941, something that would really come after World War II when American attitudes towards kind of being a world leader changed um, for regular Americans. At this point, France and Britain were considered you know, these great uh, empires and so on by many Americans. And here was Luce saying that, look, get get over it, America's an international power. And his examples were uh, that American culture, uh, which he, 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 quote, he said, jazz, Hollywood movies, American slang, American machines and products were the only things that every community in the world recognized in common. Um, now, he was criticized at the time uh, from both the left and from the right suggesting that it was an American century. And of course, I myself feel very uncomfortable, as do many uh, on, the, on a more progressive side, in suggesting that the, that the world was in an American century and that the, you know should look to the United States as its uh, kind of a, you know, Greenwich Mean Time, so to mm-hmm. speak, of a whole entire century. Um, what's, what was influential, nonetheless, even though he was criticized from both left and right, as I mentioned, was the idea that American culture uh, itself had an international reach and uh, had reached people around the world. The State Department, the United States State Department, um, took this as a kind of a truism um, and started to uh, send around cultural tours, what they call the jazz ambassadors. You you had Louis Armstrong, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, and other jazz musicians playing around the world, paid for by the U.S. State Department, the funding of abstract expressionist painting exhibits, you know, uh, American writers sent to Latin America and through the Middle East and countries that might go towards the Soviets. Cause that was, and the idea that the popularity of American culture might be a tool for the, for the government itself, you know, in, during the Cold War, in the Soviet, you know, the struggle against the Soviet communist model was something that was very influential. So the American century as a phrase, the way I'm using it and the way I think it's the, the 
more accurate uh, usage of it, is this idea that American culture has some interesting relationship to U.S. as a as a government and as a as a as a uh, as a nation uh, in the international sphere. Now, what happened during the Cold War? I mean, you had a lot not only the funding of these various cultural tours, but the building of, of what they were called America houses or libraries. Um, in a variety of ways, Fulbright program, um, you could in a certain way include the Peace Corps, which is a later um, example of um, the, the, the kind of bringing American culture out into the world via young people. And many of these projects, by the way, I think were, were both were good um, mm-hmm. and had led to very good uh, benefits in, in putting people into contact with each other, which is always a good thing. Because from outside, as the United States became more and more powerful during the Cold War as a, as a state, um, you know, putting actual regular Americans in contact with actual pe- real people around the world tended to be a good thing because the United States from afar can look very awesome and powerful um, to people. And, you know, as regular, you know, as Americans traveled through the world, often, you know, they're asked questions that surprise them and they became kind of individual ambassadors of way. Um, that apparatus, the, the State Department's apparatus for, for this um, kind of cultural, what would later be called cultural diplomacy, um, starts to come apart in the late 1990s because the Cold War was supposedly over. We thought we'd won the Cold War and there was less, um, there was less uh, powerful supporters for keeping the USIA in power. Uh, and meanwhile, the Republicans were arguing that it was kind of a waste of money, it could be cut back, and it really, a lot of these cultural programs were, of course, peopled by cultural people or young people in the Peace Corps, or um, the Peace Corps is independent of of this in a certain way, but that you couldn't really control jazz musicians or painters. A lot of the the politics, a lot of the artists were very leftist, of course, and some people in the Republican Party didn't like that. In any case, it starts to be taken apart in the late 90s, because it doesn't seem like a moment when it matters anymore. After September 11, 2001, when so many people are uh, freaking out to be, you know, blunt about about what's going on in the world, there are many people who argued that we should bring back this Cold War cultural diplomacy in places like the New York Times, um, within the State Department too, and so through the Bush and uh, Obama administrations, both mm-hmm. have the return of um, a lot of these cultural programs. I quote in the Salon the essay in Salon that was published on Sunday, you know, Hillary Clinton talking about hip hop initiatives uh, that looked a lot like the jazz tours of the 1950s. Uh, that that this was a tool, she says. You know, there's a quote from Hillary Clinton: "Hip hop is America. I think we have to use every tool at our disposal about why the State Department should be funding hip hop tours." Now, it's interesting to me about that quote. Of course, hip-hop is America, no, no dis- disagreement there, but the idea that the state would understand culture as a tool to help influence hearts and minds um, is quite interesting. And so one of the things that I know and I've been charting as I researched this new book after the American century is that American culture remains incredibly popular throughout the world, um, and it's including and especially in the Middle East and North Africa, even while U.S. politics have been increasingly unpopular in the Middle East region. Um, even while a critique of the U.S. as sort of an empire or an occupying force has been levied in Arab countries and Middle East, in countries, uh, non-Arab countries in the Middle East like Iran, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, nonetheless, you will find a huge presence of American popular culture, whether it's hip-hop music, of course, Hollywood movies, but all sorts of other newer versions of American culture, whether it's video games um, or social networking right. sites or YouTube, right. young people, and not, not only young people, but especially young people in the Middle East and North Africa, recognize that the origins of, of many of these cultural products are the United States and have no problem under, you know, using them, consuming them, while, uh, you know, that does not make them supportive of the United States as a political con- uh, entity. That, to me, is really fascinating. I mentioned before the ISIS social networking uh, strategy. We, had a, uh, we hosted a lecture here where, where a young scholar was showing a room of, of uh, students and faculty and people in this community here in just north mm-hmm. of Chicago 
um, ISIS's cat videos. Twitter feed. And we were kind of blown away with the savvy of what, you know, the recruiters were were doing there. Brian, Brian, I I have one uh, last question for you. And then unfortunately, we run out of time. And like I said in my email, I mean, you know, I know that your publicist had sent me the book. I want to dive into that book and have you back and and have a, a long, lengthier discussion um, about your book. But uh, my last question for you this morning you know, has to do with this idea that people uh, here in this country and, and, and probably in foreign countries in which the, you know, the democracy in America may be under threat. It's interesting because you have some politicians here in this country who may say that uh, you know, it's the gay and the lesbians who are uh, a threat to the American democracy. But what are your thoughts? Um, who's more of a threat? You know, are they these uh, conservative Republican um, uh, political figures or, or is it the internet or what, what's the threat to American democracy? Well, look, there's always been, you know, in American political history, there's always been this tension between, and it goes back to the early, you know, founding, uh, the founders of the constitution between total and full democracy of the masses and a more restricted sense that we have written into our constitution um, that kind of puts a filter between between that. What's fascinating, of course, from a historical, you know, looking at the moment we're in right now, is how the Internet, as what started as just another kind of tool or form of entertainment, which it is um, as well, has completely changed um, the, you know, our understanding of what it means to have a democratic range of voices out there. So that, you know, everything is very immediate and rapid and, as you said in the beginning of the segment, Ong, you know, like you could be, if you're watching the State of the Union, which I was doing, you might also be watching it on Twitter and what people were saying about it at the same time, which I was also doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I noticed that people in the room at the, the, as Obama was addressing were apparently writing Twitters or looking at their cell phones. I don't know what they were doing. You know, we thought they were kind of embarrassed. But then it looked like some of them were putting things on Twitter while the president spoke. So to see that in that old tradition of the State of the Union, to see members of, uh, of Congress writing tweets or whatever they're doing on their, on their tablets um, demonstrates that even in our oldest institutions, things have changed pretty directly. Now, I don't think that that, you know, is a, it's a challenge um, to, to our democracy. And we've always struggled with our, what I, you know, to go back to something I said earlier, with our unfortunate tradition of scapegoating different groups at different times. As you said, gays and lesbians, um, you know, um, uh, Muslims, Asians, and Asian Americans mm-hmm. during the 40s, and it goes, you know, African Americans, and it goes, it goes back. We don't even talk about the native peoples of the United States very much in these conversations, but they certainly would have something to say about threats to, um, you know, to, to, the, to talking about scapegoating. Um, so um, we need to you know, we're, we're rapidly adjusting to this new climate. Um, and part of the point of the Salon articles and the point of the book, when I talk about the ends of U.S. culture in the Middle East, it's not to say that U.S. culture has ended. There's been some discussion about that, but that U.S. culture ends up in so many places and is, so much is done with it in ways that we didn't recognize or didn't think would happen. Um, mm-hmm. And that, to me, and this when, you know, this comes out much more in the book, the nuance of a book, um, to look at what's happening in the new Egyptian um, cultural scene or in Iran or in Moroccan uses of Facebook. I write about the first openly gay Moroccan novelist in that book um, and what YouTube did to the discussion of sexuality and homosexuality in Morocco, um, which is a fascinating story to tell, maybe for another show. Yes. Um, <laughs> I think I've got you interested, right? Yes, but, yes, um, yes. I can't wait for the book to arrive in my, my hands. Right. So, you know, you just see that in this, in this digital age, um, part of what I'm trying to do is describe a period, what I'm calling after the American century, when culture moves so immediately and, and ends, up, ends up in so many different places. Mm-hmm. And young people, who I'm, oh, I'm an optimist in the end, despite all the negative, sad, terrible right. things we're talking about, <laughs> I remain optimistic that young people, creative people um, in a variety of communities in the U.S. and right. around the world will help us figure out um, and, you know, manage the downside that's come with all of these 
liberating technologies and possibilities. I agree. I agree. And 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 Donald Trump is getting older. And uh, you know, <laughs> um, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you for your time. And uh, I look forward to our next session, uh, and I look forward to the book. So thanks for spending some time with us. Michelle, thanks so much. I'll be out in San Francisco and Berkeley uh, in the spring to give a couple lectures at Berkeley, and um, I look forward to talking to you uh, further, maybe around then. Yes, that sounds perfect. You should get your hands on uh, Brian's book, and that is titled After the American Century, The Ends of the U.S. Culture in the Middle East. It's available, uh, I'm sure, anywhere you can get it. Thanks for listening. You can catch The Michelle Miao Show Monday through Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time, on the Progressive Voices Network. 